Hello and welcome to the SEC English podcast number 20, the third in a series of podcasts revising King Lear leading up to the Leaving Certificate in early June. My name is Julian Gurdam. This is the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. You can read more at our blog www.sccenglish.ie. Last week I concentrated on the bleakness of the story of King Lear and Shakespeare's vision. By way of contrast, this week I'm going to discuss two characters who, in the way of westerns, we might describe as the good guys. King Lear certainly doesn't present us with a world in which everyone is bad or foolish. The critic Tony Tanner states that, quote, Cordelia is, along with Kent and Edgar, and for the most part Albany, the most steadfastly natural character in the play, end quote. Cordelia might be a bit stubborn or difficult in Act 1, Scene 1, but in the end she is a loyal, forgiving and loving daughter. Her decent husband, the King of France, recognises these qualities, and they are why he marries her. The fool is loyal to Lear, despite the latter's foolishness. Edgar, at first foolish and gullible, grows in moral stature on his strange path through the role of poor Tom. One of the most significant and indeed morally heroic moments in the play is when a nameless servant attacks and eventually kills Cornwall after his torture of Gloucester. And then there are two men, two dukes who are morally decent and worthwhile, and these are the two I will discuss today, Albany and Kent. Albany is an interesting character with a clear developmental arc through the story. In brief, he is someone who discovers moral clarity through force of circumstance. Initially, he seems a rather passive person. We see him only briefly in Act 1. All he says in Scene 1 is an easily missed Dear Sir, forbear when Lear reaches for his sword. Words which he says with Cornwall. Significantly, thus at first, he seems to be bracketed with his brother-in-law. He next appears in Scene 4, and his first line then is a characteristically mild, passive and ineffective comment to Lear, who is ranting about calling Goneril a marble-hearted fiend. Pray, sir, be patient. And as I said last week in discussing King Lear through the idea of the gods, Albany is a particularly faithful follower of these elusive creatures, despite the evidence that they're not to be relied on. In Act 1, Scene 4, after Lear has stormed off, stuttering that Goneril's organs of increase should be dried up, Albany comments, Now, gods that we adore, whereof comes this? A few lines later, he shows that there is a better self underneath the mildness, when he says to his wife, in objecting to her treatment of her own father, I cannot be so partial, Goneril, to the great love I bear you. But he's then trampled by her dismissive, patronising, pray you, content. And then we don't see him for all of Acts 2 and 3, and we might easily forget about him. There seems to be no sign that he will become an important figure, and rather that he will remain what his wife calls our mild husband. However, by Act 4, Scene 2, he has had enough, and he arrives with dramatic words. Oh, Goneril, you are not worth the dust which the rude wind blows in your face. I fear your disposition. This is followed by a positive torrent of outraged accusation. 
Wisdom and goodness to the vile seem vile, filths savour but themselves. What have you done, tigers, not daughters? What have you performed? A father and a gracious aged man, whose reverence even the head-lugged bear would lick, most barbarous, most degenerate, have you madded. Could my good brother suffer you to do it? Adding, shortly, later, See thyself, devil. Proper deformity seems not in the fiend so horrid as in woman. And finally, he says that he feels like tearing her apart with his own hands. Were it my fitness to let these hands obey my blood, they are apt enough to dislocate and tear thy flesh and bones. Howe'er thou art a fiend, a woman's shape doth shield thee. As I said last week, however, he remains naively a truster of justice, especially divine justice. And when the messenger announces that Cornwall has been killed after blinding Gloucester, he exclaims, This shows you are above, you justicers, that these are nether crimes so speedily can venge. In Act 5, he juggles between his horror at what his wife, Regan and Edmund are doing, and his patriotism as an Englishman. He arrests Edmund on capital treason, and his own wife, this gilded serpent, and is prepared to fight Edmund if no other champion should appear. Edgar does, in fact. And later, in the final scene, he is given these memorable words. Shut your mouth, dame, or with this paper shall I stop it? Hold, sir, thou worse than any name, read thine own evil. No tearing, lady, I perceive you know it. Well, this is scarcely the milky Albany we met earlier. Forced by the sheer magnitude of the evil which has gripped the country, he has proven his own moral mettle. However, as I said last week, all this decency is for naught. He is also almost comically ineffective. When Kent asks where the king is, Albany replies, Great thing of us forgot. Speak, Edmund, where's the king and where's Cordelia? Well, dead by now is the answer. Might have helped things a little if you had a slightly better memory. And again, as I said last week, five seconds before the dead Cordelia is brought in by King Lear, Albany exclaims, the God's Defender. And as he is wrapping things up in the speech Know Our Intent, he talks of the comfort that shall be applied, and finishes with the entirely wrong, all friends shall taste the wages of their virtue, and all foes the cup of their deservings. But then he has to break off with, oh see, oh see, as Lear realises that Cordelia is dead. This is the critic Andrew Gurr, Quote, Albany is the last remaining figure of authority. And what does he do with that authority? He first attempts to restore order by returning things to the position they were in before Lear's disastrous, darker purpose was revealed. Ignoring the collection of corpses accumulating offstage, he declares, All friends shall taste the wages of their virtue and all foes the cup of their deservings. But this well-intentioned statement is a nonsense as Lear immediately tells him, dismissing the simple-minded thought that there is any chance of virtue ever being rewarded, Lear says, and my poor fool is hanged. Every word of that searing sentence locks onto the events of the play. The connective and, and my poor fool is hanged, shows it is Lear's answer to Albany's proclamation. How can you say such a thing when Cordelia is dead? 
end quote. Finally, aware of his own unworthiness and inadequacy, Albany hands over his claim in the kingdom to Edgar. Kent, of course, is very different. Here we have the unwaveringly consistent voice of loyalty, and more importantly, the crystal-sharp vision that Albany lacks. I've already dealt in the first revision podcast with Act 1, Scene 1. In his first full speech in the play, in Act 1, Scene 1, from lines 144 onwards, we see Kent's fearless and selfless rebuking of Lear. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad, and, very directly, What wilt thou do, old man? Thinkest thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows? To plainness honours bound, when majesty stoops to folly, reverse thy doom, and in thy best consideration check this hideous rashness. And significantly, in terms of the key blindness trope, he says, see better, Lear. Three scenes later, he returns in disguise, again at considerable risk to himself to serve his master loyalty. He is, he says then, a very honest-hearted fellow and as poor as the king. And he rightly says that he can deliver a plain message bluntly. In Act 2, Scene 2, he has his confrontation with Oswald, the very opposite kind of servant, a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, and so on. So on. He suffers as a result being put in the stocks. And he wisely says at the end of that scene, in a brief soliloquy, using one of the key words and indeed key ideas of the play, nothing almost sees miracles but misery. In other words, you have to be lowly to see the truth. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. He goes on to try to protect the king on the heath in the storm scenes, Act 3, Scene 2 and Act 3, Scene 4. Closely identified with Cordelia in the first scene, he then reunites her in Act 4, Scene 7, stating selflessly and humbly about himself, To be acknowledged, madam, is our paid. All my reports go with the modest truth, no more nor clipped, but so. And finally, at the end of the play, he has the ultimate judgment on what has happened. All's cheerless, dark and deadly. And he leaves broken-hearted. My master calls me. I must not say no. These two relatively minor characters are stitched into the fabric of the story, touching repeatedly on key ideas of the play. Kent and Albany are similar in their fundamental decency, different in their emotional and intellectual intelligence. But in the end, though, neither of them is able to mitigate or deflect the horror of this tragedy.